First Corinthians one. Yes, thank you. Twenty twenty. Let's do twenty six through thirty one. 26. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. In contrast, God is why you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Okay, I'm super happy to be here. And it's been an interesting journey <clears throat> leading uh, to me being here, leading to me writing this book, The God Who Riots. I remember in... 2017, I was a part of an evangelical church. I was uh, at a meeting with the associate pastors and told them, I don't feel comfortable inviting young adults to service on Sundays, like people my age, which was a problem because I was the young adults minister at the church. And so we ended up having a talk and I said, I feel like we're not talking about the things that my peers are talking about. It was 2017. So people were talking about Trump's travel ban on Muslims. People were talking a lot about trans rights. People, women's marches were happening. Black Lives Matter protests were happening. A lot of conversations about police brutality. And yet every Sunday, we acted like none of that was happening in the world. We're like in a bubble. And then after I was done talking, one of the assistant pastors said, I don't think there's as many people thinking about that stuff as you think there are. And that's that's when I knew I had to leave. And so I left a couple months or a month after that. And when I left, I remember feeling like, of course, there are people who are thinking and talking about this stuff. And they need a better way of talking about their faith that also connects to those issues, that also connects to their desire for justice. And so that's been my passion for a very long time, even before I had left. And I'd spent years trying to make everything, trying to synthesize things, but got to a place where I couldn't. And I ended up becoming a part of more progressive Christian spaces, which was cool because they, of course, talked about all these issues. But I noticed that there was problems with progressive churches as well. Not that conservative churches go too far one way and progressive churches go too far another way. I'm not saying that. I'm saying often progressive churches also don't go far enough and that there is more to be done. And I found myself at this prayer retreat with my church. And it was like a couple day thing. Where we're having different talks on different topics. And one of them was on contemplation, meditation, the inner life. And then a separate conversation was about the outer work, liberation, justice. And I realized th those two conversations rarely transition into each other smoothly. And I was thinking, how can we connect those conversations, the inner life and the outer work? And one of the things that came into mind 
was vulnerability. Realizing it is within the vulnerable parts. In the inner life, we are trying to get in touch with our vulnerable parts of ourselves and embrace them and realize that that is where God is to be found. That is where God lives through. And at the same time, it is the vulnerable parts of society where God is to be found and where God lives through. It's the part of ourselves and the part of society that is often avoided. It's those marginal spaces where God is experienced. That's why Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. The incarnation didn't stop with Jesus. Christ kept incarnating, becoming further and further enfleshed in those marginal spaces. And that's why I've also been inspired by liberation theology, as Aurelia mentioned earlier, which its central idea is that God has a preferential option for the poor. God chooses the side of the poor. God opts for the poor. And so, therefore, the church should too. And the reason, what's funny about that is once you get that, I'm sure a lot of people here already get that, you start reading the Bible and realize, oh, yeah, this whole thing is from the perspective of the poor and the oppressed. Oh, yeah, this, all of, like, Jesus came as one of the poor and oppressed. And then eventually, liberation theology just feels like theology. Is like this is just what the Bible says. This is just who God is. Duh. And then you realize the only reason it had to become a distinct interpretive lens is because of the history of the church choosing the side of the powerful again and again and the rich again and again. That's the only reason why we have to develop that distinct lens. And I love in this parable that Jesus tells where the nations are judged. And he judges the group for caring for the least of these. And he judges the other group for not caring for the least of these. But what I find really interesting is that God doesn't then turn to the least of these and judge them. Isn't that's I feel like that's a little weird. Because we imagine in that parable, oh, this is all humanity, right? But yeah, he's talking about the least of these. And he's judging not just individual people, he's judging communities, societies, nations for how they treated the least of these. But perhaps the least of these are already in because he judges people on how they treat them. And so Jesus goes around teaching and he doesn't teach God's universal love, even though he knows God loves everyone equally, he teaches what he needs to. And he says, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the hungry for you will be filled. Blessed are the, those who weep for you will laugh. And that word blessing is really weird these days because sometimes we end up uh, equating it with wealth and privileges. It's like the more wealth and privileges you have. Like today, when we use the word blessed, we're referring to someone who has like a vacation home or something or a bidet, something like that. Like, oh, yes, what a blessing. But the way Jesus used the word blessed, he was in, in especially in the first century Jewish sense, it was saying God is on your side. 
And so God went to the least of these, the poor, the oppressed, and said, God is on your side. And so our idea of, well, the bougier you are, the more blessed you are, is totally flipped upside down. And to the bougiest of people, Jesus said, woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are filled, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you will weep. And then as I was writing this book, I one of the questions I had was, why did Jesus interact with the people he interacted with? Why did he interact the way he interacted with them? And then I got to the question, why did Jesus forgive those who he specifically forgave? And when we think of forgiveness today, I think that's a little flipped upside down too. We often think pardoning harm is basically forgiveness. But if pardoning harm was all that forgiveness was, then it would make sense for Jesus to go around forgiving those who did who were guilty of the most harm. He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes to those who had the most harm done to them and forgives them. And another thing that's important to know is that in the first century Jewish sense, sin was understood as bondage that we need to be released from. And forgiveness was understood as release from that bondage. Also, it was always understood as communal. The sins of society and society needs to be released. But what often happens is the blame for the problems of society and the sins of society ends up always falling on the poor and the oppressed and the sick. Always just rolling down like rain falling, rolling down a bottom of a hill. That's where all the blame goes. And society today, it's similar. In the first century, they may say, well, those people are causing this because they have demons in them or they're ritually unclean. In our society, it's like, well, they're living that life because they don't work hard enough or they didn't go to school. They're not smart enough or whatever. It's like Jesus goes to those and says, you are released. You are released from the guilt and the pressure that society puts on you. And when Jesus offers that release and that forgiveness, they're able to finally look outward for the causes of their suffering after a whole life of looking inward for the causes of their suffering. I have a friend named CJ who's a therapist who worked with people in low-income housing. And one of his clients was uh, about to be evicted because the housing manager found out she was addicted to drugs. And so they had a meeting, my friend CJ and the woman and the housing authority, and they were able to convince the housing authority to let her stay and that she wouldn't break the rules of the lease again. And then after the meeting, my friend had a conversation with his client and said, I really wish this wasn't happening to you. And I really wish we didn't live in a world that punishes you for using drugs and would make you homeless for using drugs. This is really inhumane, the way you're being treated. And I think that's the type of forgiveness Jesus was offering people. It's like, the world shouldn't be treating you this way, and I release you from the guilt and shame from the ways that you were being mistreated. 
And so God is on the side of the least of these. God is on the side of the vulnerable. It's also why I love this passage that I read at the beginning where it says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to abolish things that are. So God chooses the foolish, the weak, and despised parts of society to manifest. And God also chooses the foolish, the weak, and despised parts of ourself to manifest. The parts of ourself that we prefer to avoid, our weaknesses, our insecurities, our limitations, which is hard to talk about, especially in a society that reduces us to our usefulness, our useful, how useful we are. Like we often are in situations where we feel like we have to prove how useful we are in work, in school, or with family and friends. And yet, as you've heard plenty of times before, I'm sure God embraces all of us. But also, God particularly also embraces our weaknesses, our insecurities, our limitations with a special attention. It's not that God welcomes all of us because he loves us, but it's even special attention given to that part of ourselves because that is where God is to be found and that is where God speaks through us. You could say the parts of yourself where society shames you is the exact place where God chooses to be made known. And when we get in touch with these vulnerable parts of ourselves and the vulnerable parts of society, we gain the skills to reshape the faith, which is what has always happened. Like I said before, I'm so inspired by those who are empowered by their faith to fight oppression because they were able to get in touch with the vulnerable and the low and the least of these. See, see their theology from that perspective and reshape things in the way they should be. And some people may think that's twisting the message, manipulating the message, but what we often see is that they're just getting back to the radical roots of the message that has been lost by a Christianity that chooses the side of the rich and powerful again and again and again. And as the world changes and as we move toward liberation, the church must change too. Not to be like trend followers, but what we see is as the world changes, we discover that certain theological teachings were developed to justify and preserve the previous world. We start, it's like a rummage sale of ideas. We start to go through and realize like, oh yeah, these ideas we're just for a previous world that we no longer live in and that we're not going toward and we let go and we continue to reshape and recreate as we, as we move forward. And this has been really inspiring for me to, to be inspired by those who are reshaping the faith from below to try to participate in that work myself. Because I came out with a book recently, I ended up going to wild goose festival which is a like a progressive Christian hippie festival in North Carolina. Mostly white people, mostly old white people. I felt very out of my element. Also, I couldn't even afford to go. I had to get like um, different people to help pay for my plane ticket. I had 
my friend who was already there allowed me to stay in his Airbnb for free. And a lot of the other speakers were um, old white academics. And so here I am as this younger Mexican, poor Mexican guy uh, going to this festival filled with uh, privileged old white academics. And I felt very out of place. But I was there to promote my book. So I did. And I had a talk that I applied for and they said yes to. And I gave this whole talk about the book. And then at the end, I did a QA. and a And there, there happened to be a young person there. Whenever you're there and you see a young person, it's like, oh, my God, brother, sister, <laughs> sibling, you're another young person. And so during the Q&A, this young person over on this side asked a question about violence and nonviolence and Jesus. And I, I started to answer, but almost immediately, the old, the, probably the oldest person on this side starts raising his hand and says, oh, wait, what? I, I got something. I, I want to show you something. And then I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, I really wanted... And, and he's like, wait, actually, it would be better if I just show you a visual. And I said, is it the Walter Wink thing? Is it the Walter Wink thing? Because Walter Wink was this uh, uh, 20th century theologian responsible for a lot of social gospel stuff who had this whole thing about Jesus was not teaching passivity, but he was teaching creative, nonviolent resistance. So when we look at the verse... When someone slaps you and you turn the other cheek, Walter Wink would get people to visualize that. And it's like in the first century, when you would slap someone, it would be with the backhand. And if you say, turn the other cheek, they couldn't backhand you. They would have to form a fist. And fist hits were for equals. So it's like this way of challenging the superior inferior dynamic and say if you're gonna hit me then you have to hit me as an equal which is interesting i'm sure many some of you have probably heard that before i knew in that context a lot of the people in the crowd have heard that before and so i said is it the walter wink thing and he said yes and then he, he started running up toward the stage which was a wild moment seeing this man bolting toward me, making me feel like Chris Rock. Like literally this man is rushing the stage to show everybody this slap. And I say, it's okay. It's okay. Sit down. You, you need to sit down. And uh, I said, we'll do that after I'm done saying what I'm saying. And he said, okay. He sat down. And then I was like, I answered the question the way I wanted to. And then I said, okay, let's do your thing. And I, I got the young person up. And then I thought, this guy clearly wants to be up here. So let me get this old person up. We did the thing. Oh, look, when you backhand someone, fist. And while we're doing it, he tried to like interrupt me and lead it um, like three times and like three times. I was like, let me say it. Let me say it. And then we finished. Then he sat down all happy about himself. And then we moved on. Um, but I think about... There, there are several moments when I was at Wild Goose, and there are several moments over the last few months as I've been promoting this book where I feel very out of place and I feel like there is an old 
order of things, specifically an old white liberal order of things, mainline, old white liberal mainline order of things that I'm not interested in participating in. And I want to see something new. I want to see this faith evolve. I want to see us reshape the faith, which requires us to build new theologies, new theological um, concepts, new interpretive lenses. But where we go to get those new theologies and interpretive lenses needs to be the vulnerable, the vulnerable parts of ourselves and the vulnerable parts of society. The most vulnerable and marginalized people in society need to be the ones who lead it. They need to be the ones that lead this historic and necessary change as the as Christianity changes, as the world changes. And those who experience the most privilege and power and wealth don't know what they're doing. And we need we need people to follow along. And so <laughs> I think uh, that continues to inspire me. And I would like to leave everybody with consider in your communities, in your city, who are those that you must develop relationships with in order to listen to the vulnerable? What are the organizations that you need to become a part of? Local organizations, local organization leaders that perhaps your church needs to develop relationships with and offer your support. And also consider what are the parts of yourself that society has shamed you for, that society has said are useless and try to find God in there because this is a vulnerable God who lives through the vulnerable. Thank you.